0: All right, well we are in the Gospel of John this morning. What a great privilege to go through John uh, with you today. And what a wise choice on your part to be studying John. What a great book. Now our passage here is part of a much larger section of John's account, but it's got some very important things for us today. It zeroes in on two particular challenges of the day that people had with Jesus. And I think these are two particular challenges in our day, that people have with Jesus. Suspicion, uh, sorry, skepticism and confusion. Skepticism and confusion. In fact, these areas almost define our modern public life. Now John had written in 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I think that verse captures a lot of what's going on in the whole Gospel of John. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In the case of our story today, his own are some of his siblings and some of the religious establishment. What about our day? I think there are lots of examples of skepticism and confusion. One of them that comes to my mind is from the media types. And you see this in the aftermath of things like the very sad event, the the shooting in the church in Texas. And so, some of the media types are interviewing people and they're saying, wait a minute, you guys were at a prayer meeting, and you were praying, and some guy came in and did this thing. Obviously, your prayers aren't working. And this betrays quite a strident level, I think, of skepticism. In addition to the fact of just being quite offensive to people who are in the midst of their grief. It also betrays quite a level of confusion over what Christians think prayer is for and what prayer is about. Most Christians, except for the prosperity types, and we don't want to associate ourselves with that, most Christians don't think that prayer guarantees you safety and, and all kinds of wonderful things. In fact, I think most of us think that prayer is a way through our difficulties. It helps us understand, it helps us express our dependence uh, t- toward the Lord in the midst of trying times, right? So we see around us all kinds of examples in public life of people just not really believing and people not really understanding. It's common. We get that. We understand, I think, how that works. But you see it everywhere. And, by the way, I think you see it even inside the larger Christian community. You can find pastors nowadays who I don't think are just asking questions, but I think are pushing envelopes around the areas of our major tenets of our faith. Not really sure you can trust the Bible as the complete expression of God's word. Can't see how God would actually sacrifice his own son in the place of sinners. Did God really do that? Or this one that is a challenging one for people in our day. God just wouldn't send innocent people to hell. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I just really can't accept that. We hear these kinds of things. And I think these kinds of questions might be somewhat closer to our point today because Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well let's read the passage. We're in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 we're going to read to verse 13. So listen along, follow along. I encourage you by the way to tune in especially to this moment. Because this is the most important part here. If you hear this, if you see this, it'll help you understand everything else we say today. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we express our dependency on you. So we need you to speak to us or we won't hear anything. We need you to show us what this text says or we won't see it. So we pray that you would help us now. Fill us, each one of us, with your spirit and guide us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, first of all, we come to skepticism with this very stark statement in verse 1. Jesus stayed in Galilee and avoided Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. Very simple, very clear language there. Now, I think the geography is important. It's important for us for the whole Gospel, uh, the Gospel of John, that is, um, because there's a movement from north to south. And as Jesus is moving further south, the intensity of the story heats up because the city of Jerusalem is in Judea. That's what it means that he's going south. In fact, there's an interesting little point that I think is is good to keep in mind. Every time Jesus spoke in a synagogue, he literally, physically faced the city of his destruction. Because the synagogues were all arranged, no matter where they were around Jerusalem, to face, So, so the speaker would be looking out and facing that city. So every time Jesus got up and he read the scriptures, read from Isaiah or wherever, quoting about himself, it was always with this idea that he could look out, look at the people here, but look out the back door, as it were, and over the horizon know that there is his destiny. And his destiny is a harsh, brutal death. The place of his crucifixion. Now, for the moment, he's avoiding Jerusalem. He's avoiding Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. And their desire to kill him comes early and it comes often in the Gospels, doesn't it? In the case of John, in 518, it said they were seeking to kill him because he was making himself out to be equal with God. That was not okay. In fact, this section here is really part of a larger section that begins in verse, chapter five and runs all the way to verse eight. And this is simply an introduction to the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. What we're seeing here is gonna expand and grow in intensity, culminating in a heated argument, a very heated exchange in chapter 8, that sends the Pharisees right out of their minds. Jesus provokes them to just set their hair on fire. Reminds me of like a CNN anchor after the latest tweet, right? You know, he said, what? They go crazy. That's the Pharisees here. The Jews want to kill him. So this is all happening now during the great Jewish festival. The Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents. It's a week of remembering the provision of God while the people of Israel were traversing in the desert during the Exodus. They would take these palm branches and they would build little huts, little tents, and they would camp out in them all week, remembering what it was like out in the wilderness. And they had a couple of very important moments during this thing. One of them was the drawing of water. The other was the, was the lighting of the lamp. The water was about the rainfall, uh, the provision of water in the desert. And then also the provision, the ongoing provision every year for their crops. So there was kind of a dual purpose to this celebration. So yes, we remember when God provided water in the desert. But yes, we also remember when God provided water for our crops this year. So all that's going on. Then there is um, something to keep important about this. Because in a couple chapters, Jesus is going to say something very bold about water relative to himself. So you want to be looking out for that. Well, the second thing was the lighting of the lamps. His great candelabras would be lit lit as a remembrance of the light that was going before them as they traveled in the desert. And keep that in mind. File that away because Jesus is going to say something very bold about light relative to himself also in chapter 8. But notice here his brothers. They're acting like handlers. There is, are there campaign managers. They're saying, Jesus, you're doing these small joints out in the countryside here. That's not working. If you really want to hit the stage, it's down there in Judea. They got this great festival down there. We need to go down there publicly and really show yourself off. If you're who you say you are, that's the place to be. That's interesting, isn't it? That's probably good advice from a PR standpoint. But Jesus doesn't seem to be buying it. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Interesting. I think that they are expressing their skepticism. They don't believe. It almost feels like they're calling his bluff. Let's go, Jesus. Let's do this. Now, you can find a lot of examples in our culture of skepticism. We just had one in Canada that created a, a, a Canadian firestorm. Um, you have really big firestorms on social media. We have these little little ones like that, but it happened. <laughs> Our Governor General, who is the Queen's official representative to the Prime Minister in Canada. So it's, it's a very ceremonial position. It's important, uh, it's ceremonial, and, and the tradition is that these people always remain above politics. They don't get into partisan issues. Well, this lady, very accomplished, she's an astronaut, scientist, highly respected, her very first speech, she came out and she compared people who believe in God with those who read the horoscope. She belittled those who don't accept evolution through random selection by comparing them with people who question direct human factors in global warming. And this didn't go over real well. Canadians are nice, but at least on the, ho- on the hockey ice, we'll fight you anytime. And when you poke fun at us like this, this created a reaction, but skepticism. Just blatant, government-funded skepticism. So what is it about believing? You know, there's three marks, I think, of believers that you'll see through the Gospel of John. I would just mention them quickly here. The first one is a believer accepts what Jesus says about his relationship to the Father. That's very important. Jesus, uh, believers accept what Jesus says about his relationship to the Father. The disciples, particularly the 12, are those who from the beginning captured this. They recognized who he was. You see this early in chapter 2, the wedding of, in Cana, in Galilee, where Jesus turned the water into wine. It says there that his disciples believed in him. So fairly early on in the gospel, through that miracle, the disciples came to believe. They came to understand that this is somebody special. This is somebody else We've never seen anything like this before. So this kind of belief got into the disciples' minds, got into their hearts. Now, I do think that eventually this kind of belief would differ in quality from the rank-and-file people who saw a miracle and said, Oh, this is somebody special. I think this is a belief that says, No, we get who this is. This is the Son of God. This is God. Disciples believe that. This has become a serious question in our day. In my own denominational circles, which are starting to drift to the left on a number of ways, there are serious questions about how Jesus relates to the Father, how He relates to the Spirit. Was He, is He fully divine? How much of Himself did He give up in His earthly ministry? So a lot of people will gladly say, Jesus is a good man, oh yeah, He's wonderful. But God? We've got some questions about that. got some concerns about that. They obviously don't read the Gospels. <laughs> I think Jesus makes it very clear who he thinks he is. Anyway, a believer accepts what Jesus says about his relationship to the Father. Secondly, a believer grows in understanding over time. The disciples didn't capture everything all at once. They didn't totally understand everything all at once. Particularly this idea of his hour. Several times he has had to tell them, my hour has not yet come, or my time is not yet here. The disciples were often wanting to, let's get it going. Let's make this happen. And they often had to be told, no, wait. My time has not yet come. But over time, they would capture that. They would gather this. Okay, here, now, this is the hour. This is the moment. So the disciples were growing. And here's a challenge for us. I think it's a very important one for us. And that's this, that we need to always be growing. Even those of us whose hair is turning a little bit gray or white. (laughs) We're not off the hook. It's very important for us to set an example of pressing forward, of being lifelong learners, lifelong disciples. I don't think you get to retire as a Christian. To say, yeah, I'm done pushing forward, I'm done growing, I'm done praying, I'm done serving. I don't think that happens. And so it's very important for us who are older, I think, to set an example for our younger people to say, no, we're still wanting to grow. We're still wanting to press forward. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. Isn't that the name of that old song from the 70s? If you know that song, then then you get it. You're about my age. If you don't know the song, don't worry about it. A believer is also distinguished from those who are part of the unbelieving world. That might sound kind of simple. The world here, I think in the Gospel of John, comes to believe comes to mean the Jews. The unbelieving Jews. And here's a challenge for us to stop messing with the sins of the world or stop messing with the ways of the world's thinking. Notice how Jesus takes this prophetic tone here. In verse 6, he said, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. This is the prophetic edge of our Savior here. And we need this reminder because we are prone to wander. We're prone to drift, aren't we? We're prone to relax. We're prone to reflect what's going on in our culture. Often we are more like thermostats that reflect the temperature than, uh, or thermo, I'm getting it all messed up. You know what I mean. We're like thermometers that reflect the temperature, not thermostats that help set the temperature. That's us. We're so often just reflecting what's going on around us. And I think when we do that, we are drifting into a worldly kind of mode that's destructive for us and destructive for the world. We need this reminder as well. It's important that we are obedient. Now, I say that from the perspective that many of us, my generation, my parents' generation, grew up in very aggressively, kind of legalistic Christian cultures. It was destructive. And the thinking is this, if God's standard is this, if that's good, then this must be even better. That's kind of how it goes. The problem is that when you leave God's standard to go above, you're really close to being below anyway. So the difference between legalism and liberalism really isn't that great of a difference. They're just two sides of the same problem, which is departing from the line of Scripture, departing from the standard of God's Word. But the problem is that those of us who grew up in legalistic homes got really captured with great theology, grace-based theology. And I think sometimes we go a little too far in saying, oh, it's, it's all about grace. It's only grace. It's always grace. Yes, it is, of course. But we still need to be obedient, right? Isn't that still a call? Isn't that still a responsibility? We still need to obey. And let's, let's figure out how to do it by staying as close to that line of Scripture as we can. It doesn't mean we rush into legalism. It doesn't mean we drift down into liberalism. It takes work. It takes concentration. It takes focus. But we must obey to be a disciple of Christ. Well, Jesus mentions his hour here. I briefly touched on this earlier. What is his hour? In the Gospel of John, his hour or his time always refers to the moment of his crucifixion. When Jesus says, let's not do this because my time hasn't come, he's saying, slow it down, guys. But eventually in chapter 13, he's going to say, my hour has come. And it's going to lead him straight to the cross. His death and resurrection. This is a natural gospel connection from our story to the cross here. Keep your eyes open as you continue on in the gospel for his time, for his hour. That is the moment when everything changes. That's the moment of climax in this gospel. Okay, so Jesus says, I'm staying in Galilee. You guys go on down up to the feast. In verse 10 though, we come to the second movement, you might say, of our passage which is confusion. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast, and then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So this is kind of confusing. Jesus says, I'm not going to this feast. But then in the next verse, he says, "Okay, I'm going. But he's going on his own terms, not the terms of his campaign managers who wanted him to be public. He's going in private. Why? The Jews were being aggressive and they were looking for him. And it wasn't his time yet. Now, we come to the confusion and the muttering. Did you notice the muttering? Back in chapter 6 there was muttering. Before that there was grumbling. I'm not saying this is true here. In fact, I'm sure it's not true in this church. But every other pastor I know knows about people who mutter. And they mutter about the music or the donuts were stale or the kids were too loud i used to have a youth pastor who was very active around the church with games and stuff and they they would put holes in the sheetrock he he got so good he could fix that hole and get it all repainted before the senior citizens group came in for their coffee time 24 hours was his best time that takes a lot of work to get that mud and taped and dried and painted but some of those old guys would look at that thing and ah i can see the yeah. and mutter 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 Forget we had 50 kids in the youth group and this great thing. No, 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 they messed up the building. Every pastor knows about the muttering that goes on. Well, Jesus is dealing with mutters here. They're muttering about all kinds of different things. And one of the things they're saying is, he's a good man. That's a common sentiment. That one will work right over there at the university. You walk out there and say, who believes Jesus was a good man? And most of them will say, oh, yeah, he's a good man. Now, that could change any minute because we're in turbulent political times in our public discourse, maybe that'll go away very quickly. But for the moment, I think people still have this generally good idea, Jesus was a good man. Other people were saying, no, no. He's leading the people astray. Now that's a serious charge. Sometimes I think we look at these Pharisees and we, and we think, these guys were just insane. They were just crazy. No, there was a certain logic. They were, they were acting on the basis of truth, as they understood it, of what they were taught. In Deuteronomy 13.9 it says this, listen to this. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall first be against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This was the particular charge against Jesus. He is drawing people away from the Lord. And here it is in the context of a celebration about the exodus and the deliverance from Egypt. And in that context, this passage from Deuteronomy was written. And in this context, they're saying, here here comes somebody who's doing that. He's drawing the people away from the Lord. What's the penalty for that? It's death. Again, there was a a certain logic behind what they were saying. Now, I think they were being selective in their use of scripture. And they weren't listening to to the Messiah as he had been presented to them through the prophets and all that, of course. But this is why they were so hot about this. And there was confusion among the public. He's a good man. No, he's leading the people astray. Now, this discussion is going on quietly. We read about it right there. Why? because of their fear of the Jews," in verse 13. The Jews had intimidated the people. Well, where was this confusion from? Let's back up a bit to chapter 6. In fact, I think you could back up to chapter 5, where Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. That really set a lot of this in motion. That really got the Jews going. In chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And in verse 14, Somebody said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Great news. But just a few verses later, verse 25, they say, why did you come? In verse 30, they say, what sign do you give? No, he just fed 5,000 people in their families. They're saying, could you give us a sign, do something spectacular? We just haven't quite seen it yet. Amazing. In verse 42, they say, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? That's a way of saying, wait a minute. I know his dad. His dad is right down there around the corner there. We know the address. This can't be the guy. (laughs) This can't be the one that we've been waiting for, the Messiah. No. We know his dad. He's just a businessman around the corner there. Of course. And then Jesus started talking radical. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That really sent some people into confusion. In verse 52, 652 they say, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this be? This doesn't make any sense. It threw many of the disciples way off. In fact, some of them said, That's too much. We can't, we can't, we can't. We can't keep going with this. We're done. We're out. Of course. That is so hard. Well, again, I think we see this constantly in our culture society, uh, confusion over the identity of Christ. And I think in a way, it's understandable. We have the benefit of centuries of Christian thought. We have the benefit of the completed canon, the completed text of scripture, and all the teaching that maybe we've grown up with, or at least that's in part of our, been part of our larger culture. These guys didn't, and I suspect that if we were there, we might have been just as confused as they were. And I think this is a helpful tone for us to take, especially as you think about your mission to the university here, to your community, and and even to the world, because I know you have interest around the world. A tone not of seeing lost people as enemies of God, as much as victims of Satan people who need to hear the good news, who need to be rescued. Of course, I think this will help us in our tone. But even the signs were not enough for many of the people that Jesus carried out. And I'm quite interested in apologetics, and I know some of you probably are too. You take a great interest in these things, and I think it's a worthwhile project But in the end, sometimes I think it just comes down to simple proclamation. Jesus is Lord. This is what the Bible teaches. Sometimes I think maybe that's just the simplicity of the message we need. Some friends of mine, I I actually joined them in their work. They were doing this thing. We had this uh, thing that would come to our city called a Mind, Body, Spirit Expo. And it was basically a a sales convention uh, for products uh, for new agey kind of things. And so, you know, you could get a stick from the Amazon, you could get water from the mountains, or you could get leaves, or all these things, accoutrements. You could buy all this stuff um, to help you enter the New Age stuff. So these guys put up a booth there, and it was free prayer. (laughs) It's a little controversial. Some of the Christians thought you shouldn't even have anything to do with this. But they thought, well, Jesus went to the marketplace. We're going to the marketplace. So they bought a booth, set it up, and it was just prayer. And people would come by and say, well, how much for the prayer? It's free, free. We had the only free booth in the whole convention center. And people would come by for prayer. And our message was simple, Jesus is Lord. That's it. We didn't get into arguments with people. We just said, if you wanna pray, and 90% of the people coming to a thing like that are happy to engage in prayer. Yeah, tell us, give, you know, give us some prayers, and hopefully that'll help them. You know, I don't think they were com- completely understanding But the message was so simple. We believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Lord. That's all. So you're taking a stick from the Amazon or a rock that you think has special powers, that's fine. We think that we're talking to the one who made that stuff. And that's more important to do. I was really impressed with my friends. I was just kind of there to watch and help a little bit. Well, that's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible comes through with this amazing gospel. (laughs) And that's why this church exists. That's why we need to exist as Christians. It's for the sake and the propagation, the advancement of the gospel. And the gospel comes with these amazing reversals. Reversals of fortune. We're going one way and we end up going another way. Think about the reversals that are involved, particularly with Jesus. Jesus was killed so that we could live. Jesus was sent away so that we could be brought in. Jesus went down so that we could go up. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. You see where this is going? Jesus held on to nothing so that we could have everything. And here's one of my favorites God treated his own son like a sinner. So that he could treat sinners like his own sons and daughters. Think about that when you're walking around today. Jesus put on a crown of thorns so that we could one day wear crowns of gold. The great reversal of the gospel. And the gospel also has a reversal in this sense. When Jesus showed up walking around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he had a very simple message, repent and believe. And it simply meant this. And I share this with you because I don't know who in here has done this. I don't know who in here is a true believer of Christ. And I don't want to walk away from you without you hearing the gospel call, the invitation. It's simply this. You're headed down a path this way. You stop. Repent means to stop and turn away from that evil. Turn away from the rebellion. So you repent of your rebellion and you turn a different direction towards belief. That's it. Repent and believe. And now become one of his followers. Do what he says. Get into a church family and grow. That's what it means to become a Christian. Repenting and believing. So what about us? Two quick questions to end on. One, do you believe? This is the call of this particular passage. Do you believe? Or do you believe that you believe? (laughs) Do you believe and are you clear? Do you believe and are you clear? And the way to get clear, I think, is to stick with this gospel. Stick with this sermon series. Continue to read the passage. Read on ahead. Read back a little bit. Immerse yourself in this gospel because it will be clear if it's not clear now. Amen? Let's pray together.